This is Gretchen Carlson of the Marshall Journeys podcast, and you're listening to the Kung Fu Podcast with T.W. Smith. Your skill in martial arts history has increased by one. Exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts with me, your host, T.W. Smith. If this is your first time to the program, welcome. You're in the audience of some of the finest and sharpest martial artists in the world. People who put in a great deal of sweat and a great deal of care into honing their craft. In this episode, we're going to look into a book that has been lost, but then has emerged with references to it. It possesses unique sets of insights into the evolving nature of the southern Chinese martial arts during the 1800s of the late Qing Dynasty. This is the period in which many styles that we know today, Hungar, Choli Foot, Southern Praying Mantis, and Wing Chun, were coming into being. I think you'll find it very intriguing. The episode is based on an essay written by a good friend in the program, Professor Ben Juckins. The essay begins, Brian Kennedy, who recently passed away, was a scholastic expert in Chinese training manuals. There is no subject more beloved in the world of Kung Fu fiction than the lost training manual. There have been countless films, TV programs, and wuxia novels that have focused on an image of a lost, or even better yet, a stolen book that holds the secrets to ancient combative prowess. Heroes and heroines go to amazing lengths to procure such a book and to unravel its secrets, both a source of knowledge and an outward sign of martial excellence in the fictional world of the river and lakes. These fight books can be the ultimate markers of one's social status. Ben is going to identify the previously anonymous translator of this lost text and discuss his role in shaping the public perception of the Chinese martial arts during the late 19th century. I am sure that you have never heard this man's name in any of your martial training. In fact, many academics in the fields of martial arts haven't heard his name either. They don't even know his actual year of his birth. If he is remembered at all, it is a middling official in Hong Kong civil service who eventually reached the rank of acting treasurer and postmaster general. What is not generally appreciated is that in addition to being a fine linguist, this man had a passion for Cantonese popular culture and street literature. During this episode, we're going to be looking into the marginal Southern Chinese martial arts communities. When we describe someone as marginal, we mean that they are not involved in the main events or developments in society. They're usually poor, sectionalized, or have no power in basically their own lives. The man's name is Alfred Lister. His interest in the realm of gambling dens, opera theaters, and public marketplaces brought him into real close contact with various aspects of the Chinese martial arts. Lister's interest sparked what appears to have been the first sustained multi-year research project undertaken by a Western scholar in the realm of the Chinese fighting systems. Lister's contributions to the 19th century discussion of the martial arts have probably gone unappreciated for two main reasons. First, some of his most important works were published anonymously in journals and newspapers, as was fashionable for dabbling scholars at the time. In a real sense, there was a failure that we even know that it was Alfred Lister's work. We were never meant to know who produced these pieces of work. The second reason his work has gone unappreciated is that Lister's interests were not so much historical or technical. Those are the genres most likely to attract the attention of modern martial arts students. He was not even hoping to learn or teach a fighting system. His fascination of the Chinese martial arts was more of an anthropological nature. By looking at the martial arts, Lister hoped to understand both the unique aspect of Cantonese culture and also to comment on universal behavioral patterns that he perceived in marginal individuals around the globe. 
the hypothesis being these marginal individuals engaged in similar behaviors as a way of producing a social status. Due to Lister's mocking style and his harsh judgments about the effectiveness of, air quote, Chinese boxing, most who have come across his anonymously produced works have seen them just as a simple curiosity, then ultimately dismissed them as a typical product of imperialist 19th century attitudes. However, when you look deeper, Lister's work reveals someone with a complex relationship with his environment. He had interesting theories about the role of translation in facilitating cross-cultural understanding. And it was Lister who was one of the earliest students of the sociology of the Chinese martial arts. In truth, the sort of individuals and practices that were common in the 1870s do not always reflect the images or levels of efficacy that modern Chinese martial artists wish to be associated with today. Yet, Lister's greatest achievement that spawned this podcast over 150 years later was his discovery of a short manual which he titled The Noble Art of Self-Defense. Lister's partial translation and description of this work is invaluable to modern students of martial arts studies as it confirms the existence of a previously undocumented genre of fight books that were, by his account, commonly available at the time. Unfortunately, these pamphlets were treated as ephemera, and to the best of Professor Junkin's knowledge, there is not a single surviving example of this genre. If not for Lister's discussion, modern scholars might not even know of their existence. Yet, they have important implications for our understanding of the region's fighting system and the evolution of its martial marketplace. At this point, Professor Junkins has inserted an image, and it's one that has like a couple of paragraphs from uh, Lister's translation, and then several images uh, that appear to be like out of the Bubishi sort of time period, where there's a picture of a guy doing something like lifting weights or moving a sword with the Chinese characters about perhaps what this is or what the name of it is. Then there's this old black and white picture of five men standing outside of a building, and they appear to be dressed as if they had just finished a play or something. And they're probably representatives of some of the Chinese martial arts events and shows that went on during that time. So to really understand this story, we have to ask, well, who was this Alfred Lister? Lister's story actually begins not with his birth, which we don't know the year to, but with the British acquisition of Kowloon in 1860. Faced with the need to communicate with a vastly expanded Chinese community, the colony's administration put into place plans to upgrade their civil service and institute training programs for talented young translators. The promise of a healthy salary and rapid advancement attracted several applicants and Lister was a member of the second class accepted into government service in 1865. The early years of Lister's career were unpromising. Rather than being able to complete the promised training period, he was just thrusted into offices that put him on the front lines of the colony's interaction with the Chinese residents. These offices included both an administrative harbor master position and a judicial justice of the peace capacity. Early in Lister's career, we find records of him being involved with the first attempts to regulate brothels to stop infectious disease outbreaks. Later, he caused a scandal, which reached all the way to the Parliament. When he wrote a report documenting the deplorable conditions in a Chinese charity temple that was used to store bodies and coffins waiting to be shipped home for burial. Seeing that there was no modern refrigeration at the time in China and even sparse in the U.S. and U.K., I'm sure that this was quite an awful place to be. The scandal actually started, though, because Lister noted not all the residents of the facility were actually dead at the time they were being dumped there. His reports on what would be considered hospice-needed services is what led to the creation of the first modern hospital for Chinese residents in Hong Kong. Lister's writing, particularly his anonymous ones, suggests that he was quick to criticize his fellow administrators 
and the foolishness of the Western community in China more generally. While to our modern ears, Lister's judgments of the Chinese culture are harsh, but the readers of that period most likely heard someone with too much sympathy to the Chinese population, especially given his administrative responsibilities to the crown. As such, it is probably no surprise that Lister's career plateaued early, and his obituary in the North China Herald noted he died in 1890 with few friends. That very same obituary went on to remember Lister's publications as a younger man very fondly. So what is it that Lister wrote? The short answer would be poetry. Lister was both a talented literary critic and an amateur poet. Though this part of his writing does not seem to have anything to do with our fight books, it is important to review because of his engagement with translations such as noted sineologist Professor James Legge. A sineologist is someone who pursues the mastery of Chinese culture, language, politics, and history. Lister began to lay out his own theory of translation, which had its own sinological pursuit. As a reminder, we have spoken about this many times on the program, every translation of a text loses something, or it adds something which may detract from what the original uh, version of the uh, works may have meant. We discussed this in a great detail in Kung Fu Podcast, where Christianity met martial arts. Lister wanted to close that gap. He had theories that had an important impact on both how he translated and transformed martial arts in word when presenting them to the Western audience. Lister's first treatments of the martial arts arose out what might be considered more of a literary pursuit. In 1869, the Duke of Edinburgh arrived for a highly publicized tour of Hong Kong. Lister was present at the Tung Hing Theater where the Duke watched two performances. Most likely, Lister was there as the translator. The first of these was a historical drama, but the second was a farce comedy. More modern examples of farce comedies are slapsticks like Chevy Chase National Lampoon movies or Monty Python, the type of shows that honestly I'm not a big fan of, but they are popular. This farce that Lister is at is titled Alan's Pig, whose plot revolved around topics such as compulsive gambling, domestic abuse, and martial arts. Lister initially wrote a summary of this kung fu comedy for a memorial book celebrating the Duke's visit. Yet it appears that something about the opera and both the linguistic and cultural challenges of it caught his attention. In the first issue of the China Review that was published in 1873, readers were graced with an article signed by Lister in which he provided both the translation of the play and enough background discussion of the martial arts to make it sensible to a Western audience. Lister remarks that while he was searching for street literature, he came across a libretto for the opera. I had to look up the word libretto, which is derived from Italian as the text for a long vocal work. So Lister had found this libretto for the opera in the stall of a local bookseller and immediately set out to translate the work. Yet the libretto for a Chinese opera is very sparse compared to a Western script. So to give this thing a little bit more meat and give the readers of the West a better sense of what it was all about, he was adding a list of characters, costumes, stage directions, and jokes that he saw and heard that were typically ad-libbed on a nightly basis. Lister was doing all of this so that the readers of the West could get an actual sense of what a performance of this piece would look like. In Lister's view, the rights of an audience to grasp the feeling and experience of a text vastly outweighs whatever rights an author might claim to a literal translation. And to make something meaningful of this work so a Western audience could employ it and could relate to it and that the cultural signs were familiar to them. In short, Lister argued that any translation of a text must be in part a transformation and that this responsibility should be embraced for the sake of the reader. Now let's reflect on that for a moment. 
Lister is taking everything that he knows about Chinese culture. He's living there during the time period. He's in it on the front line, and he's trying to do his best job, not for fame or anything else, because he believes it's his responsibility to try to help you understand what's happening there to the best of his ability, even though he doesn't know the Chinese martial arts, but he does know the culture. He does know the politics. He was the postmaster. He was the justice of the peace. So he knows a lot more than we do about the backdrop to all of this work. He wanted to share meaning, and he was very transparent about it. He was obviously trained enough and submerged enough to offer his perspective. Lister made a comedic, grandiose declaration because he anticipated the criticism for the fact that he was going to be placing English folk songs rather than Cantonese ones in the mouth of his Cantonese actors, which he noted this should be fine since he was, after all, translating a farce anyway. But more importantly, it also gives us some ideas of the issues that we should be aware of in his discussions of the Chinese martial arts. Lister seemed to have indeed been fascinated by the fact that Chinese martial artists, much like their counterparts in the London ring, had developed their own technical vocabulary for describing their actions. And he noted almost immediately that on a sociological level, mastering this sort of vernacular code was used in both societies as a means by which members of the underclass sought to gain a measure of social respect among their peers. Whether Western or Chinese boxers could actually claim a great degree of social respect was something that Lister seemed to doubt. He was interested in Chinese popular culture, but he did not romanticize it. Most of the martial artists that Lister seemed to have been aware of were either patent medicine salesmen, retired opera singers, soldiers, or gamblers. This last group, the gamblers, deserves special consideration in Lister's estimation. Probably, as the martial artists in the opera that he had translated were also gamblers. An article that was written anonymously in the North China Herald in 1873, and later they discovered that it was written by Lister, hits on several of his favorite points. It's a published account of a recent fight in Shanghai in which one gambler accidentally kills another in the middle of an impromptu challenge match. The entire affair was a tragedy that destroyed multiple lives. Yet, it gave Lister a chance to explore the social context of the Chinese martial arts, as well as explore the linguistic similarities between the technical vocabulary surrounding the Chinese and Western modes of boxing. Just as importantly, it provided him with an opportunity to blend the two for the sake of the reader. Any English language essay on this particular topic would have faced extreme, unique challenges. We must keep in mind that during the late 1800s, there was no single accepted term for Chinese martial arts, especially the way that we use it today. The phrase martial arts is a Western production and wasn't common in the West until the 1970s, as well as Kung Fu was not stabilized as a shorthand for these fighting systems until the English publications of the Jingwu Association in the 1920s. In the late 1800s, Western readers relied on a mixture of terms that included, but were not limited to, boxing, gymnastics, juggling, dancing, training, and acrobatic terms to describe what we would now call a standard martial arts exhibition. Mulling all this over, Lister decided that he was seeing what was essentially a Chinese analog for the, quote, noble art of self-defense, end quote, which by the late 19th century had come to be used as a nostalgic term for boxing. Indeed, it would become something of a catchphrase in all of Lister's writing. Now, at this point in the essay, we have another image put in, and some of it is Lister's Uh, redrawing, sketching of what he saw in the book, and amazingly similar diagrams that were also in the Wu Beiji or the Bubishi. Ben writes that interpreting these images, that Lister's reproductions of the woodcuts with the manuscript pages of the roughly contemporary Wu Beiji, 
the movements in both sets of these images are sequential and are meant to be read left to right, first A-ax, then B-reacts. And it goes through just like it does in those old manuals. So we are now at the point of discovering the noble art of self-defense. In a publication before 1873, Lister noted that he was searching for the popular literature for information on the Chinese martial arts, but he found nothing. This led him to surmise, very correctly, that these practices of the Chinese martial arts constituted a very distinctive oral culture. But apparently, Lister's luck changed between 1872 and 1874 when he returned to the pages of the China Review with an anonymously published article that was titled The Noble Art of Self-Defense. This work begins with an extended discussion of the uncanny correspondences that one finds between parallel institutions in China and the West. That led him to a discussion of Chinese boxing and his latest document find. Lister gives a commentary and partial translation of the noble art of self-defense. While Lister claimed that this is a, quote, direct translation, he is also kind enough to provide the book's original title in Chinese for anyone with the skill or interest to examine it. A more literal translation would be something like the tearing down techniques of hero boxing. This makes sense as self-defense. Now, whether it was noble or otherwise was not a descriptor that was used to name martial arts at that time. Hero boxing, however, is an idiomatic construction that makes frequent appearances in several techniques and sets that are associated with various martial arts that arise out of southern China in the late 19th century. It is actually significant that this small work had a title, as many of the handwritten manuscripts that were being circulated at that time, particularly those in conjunction with medical manuals, did not even have titles. Unfortunately, though, the book that Lister translated had no author. But that shouldn't surprise you either, because printing something like this was illegal. This copy likely came to Lister's attention precisely because the gray market popular literature and critical newspapers could be printed on one side of the colonial border and then shipped for sale in Guangzhou or Foshan with ease and minimal risk. Christopher Hamm in 2005 previously noted that this interior border area was critical to the development both of the martial arts novels and independent newspaper traditions in southern China. Lister noted that this pamphlet was printed with crude wood blocks and sold commercially for less than a penny in the sort of styles dedicated to street literature. As such, this fight book was basically a type of working-class ephemera, and that probably explains why we have no surviving copies of it 150 years later. Lister describes the volume as being comprised of a title page and then 11 more leaves. The dimensions of the book is not mentioned. Each page followed the same format that included images of two individuals engaged in combat. The fighters were shown using different techniques, which were labeled. It is possible that they may have had some brief posed descriptions of the movements, rather than the sophisticated rhyming couplets that are often seen in late imperial manuals. Yet, it is even more likely that only the names of the techniques were provided. The exact nature of the text is something that is an educated guess, but given Lister's interest in Chinese poetry, if he had come across some badly composed rhyming couplets, we can suspect that he would have only been way too eager to describe them for the readers. So let's look at the outline for this 11-page work. The name of it is Tearing Down Techniques of Hero Boxing, and Lister translated that as The Noble Art of Self-Defense. The manual description is fully 12 pages and it was purchased in Guangzhou in 1873 to 1874. It has the title page. Then it has two pages on unarmed boxing, one and two. Then it has three pages dedicated to pole fighting. Then it has four more pages 
dedicated to what is called butterfly swords, and then two more pages dedicated to rattan shield. While brief, the book follows a clear organizational scheme. The first two pages or lessons, as Lister identifies them, focuses on unarmed boxing. The next three on cover pole fighting. After that, there are four discussions of the Hu Dai Dao, known as the Bat Jam. A literal translation is eight cutting knives. Lister calls them butterfly swords. He will also discuss other types of combative short pair swords. This was a very popular class of weapons in southern China, often used in militia training and given to security guards. The final two lessons of the 12-page work is focused on the use of a woven wicker shield. The images themselves are stylistically much like what you would see in the other training manuals such as the Wu Bei Ji. Kung Fu Podcast has five episodes dedicated to returning the Bubishi to its Chinese roots. It is a 19th century hand-copied Fujinese manuscript that made its way all the way to Okinawa and subsequently inspired some early pioneers of karate. It contains several chapters that have similar images to what we're going to see in Lister's translation. As with that manuscript, these images should be read from right to left. In each case, the figure on the right initiates an attack and the figure on the left responds appropriately. We want to remember that Lister did not have a combative background nor combative interest. Uh, So it leads to the possibility that he did not grasp this visual pattern and may have caused him to mistake that the losing technique in figure seven was actually winning. Lister was fully aware that most of his information would be incomprehensible to his Western readers. Even highly experienced modern Chinese martial artists know the frustration of sitting down with a Qing-era boxing document, often with nothing more than a long list of names and not being able to make sense of it. Well, Lister does take a stab at translating some of the chapters as best he can so that they would understand what it was trying to tell them. So, for example, the title page, the tearing down techniques of hero boxing, he calls the noble art of self-defense. The first uh, chapter on unarmed boxing is called Hungry Tiger Catches the Sheep. Uh, The uh, second chapter of pole fighting is called The Stopper Overall. Uh, And the first chapter of the Rattan Shield is titled The Snipe and the oyster. So Lister does not really attempt to present a full, complete, literal translation of everything he finds because he knows you're not going to understand it anyway. Instead, he produces eight of the diagrams from the book, roughly two-thirds of the whole book in total. They were commented upon with a mix of literal translations, in some cases, like I just said, the hungry tiger catches the sheep, In others, he provides you a play-by-play of the actions in the diagram and gave his assessment as to whether or not such a course of action was really a good idea. In one case, he inserted a numbered fencing system taken from a British military training exercise into his discussion to explain to his readers what the two-dimensional Chinese images were suggesting. Any textual description also needs to take note of some of the features that are not seen in this fight book. Unlike either the Bubishi or later Republic era manuals, this work contains no historical discussion of any kind. While we know that we are looking at hero boxing, no attempt has been made to tell readers who created that or how that came about. Nor are there the sort of prefaces that someone sometimes sees attesting to the authenticities of the practices outlined within the work. The book shows no overall theoretical orientation, nor does it contain any cultural or medical references. This is extremely unique. This was a pure martial arts manual. Lister has these reproductions of four of the woodcuts from the Noble Art of Self-Defense in 1874. In each case, A attacks B, and then B responds with a winning technique, and it does it with the pole fighting, the shields, and everything else. Very, very interesting. So how do we categorize this noble art of self-defense work? Well, given what we know about Lister's manual on hero boxing, how can we situate it in this larger context of the Chinese martial arts? 
According to Kennedy and Gao, who are the standard reference on the subject, Chinese martial arts training manuals can be categorized into roughly five groups. To begin with, there are the ancient legendary texts which either never existed or have been totally lost except for their titles. Secondly, we have the early woodblock printed manuals of the Ming Dynasty. Indeed, the oldest complete Chinese fight books that we have to date to the 1500s, and this is really the start of the current conversation about the martial arts. Kennedy's third category covers the handwritten manuscripts of the later Qing Dynasty, and they note to the, the best of their knowledge there are no commercial publications of any martial arts books between the 17th and the 19th century. Then there is the advent of modern printed martial arts manuals following the explosion of nationalism that came with the 1911 revolution. Lastly, we have the sorts of how-to books we see today all over the place. This poses a problem for thinking about this current piece of work. What we have here is clearly a printed commercial manual, and yet it predates the advent of the genre by almost 40 years. Was this book a singular exception or one publisher's hobby? Or is it evidence of a once more common genre of martial arts themed ephemera that has not survived in modern collections? And if this work is part of the suspected lost genre, how might it force us to draw some different conclusions about the nature and evolution of the martial arts in the Pearl River Delta during the 19th century? Some authors have already noted that researching the history of the Chinese martial arts is difficult, precisely because their status is popular rather than elite culture. It would be incorrect to say that rich people never took an interest in boxing or military matters, Yet, because these pursuits were never seen as entirely socially respectable, in most cases the Confucian-trained scholars who re would record the local and family histories for us would play down that whole part or even just pass them totally over in complete silence. Foreign observers, on the other hand, were often fascinated by these displays of strange weapons and exotic schools of boxing or wrestling period writings of missionaries and merchants and soldiers in southern China is an important but often overlooked source of information on the development of the Chinese fighting systems. Now I'm going to give my voice a little rest and I'll be back in just a few minutes. Thank you very much. I had to take a little break there. We're coming right along with the story of Alfred Lister and how much an impact uh, this man had on the Chinese martial arts. And even though he didn't have a direct interest in learning them, it's still amazing to me uh, how much someone in that position at that time could influence so many thoughts after him. Now we're at October the 3rd, 1829 in the Canton Register. It's an article that was written by William White and Wood, and it noted the existence of another very similar fight book. The article says, quote, Pugilism in China. The art of self-defense is regularly taught in China. It is much practiced, although not countenanced by the local governments. In the penal code, nothing appears concerning it. Tracts are printed, which would, in all probability, accompanied by their woodcuts, amuse the fancy in England. The Chinese have no pitch battles that we ever heard of, but we have seen a pamphlet on the subject of boxing, cudgeling, and sword exercises in which there are many fanciful terms. So the article is going to continue by describing the first practice of Chinese martial arts. It was the striking of a hanging bag of sand, alternating hands and feet. This practice was called thumping down the walls. The second practice was grabbing the stone locks. We use those today, and they're known as the Moki Pie. The exercises include dragging thrust its claws, the crow spreads its wings, tiger seizes the lamb, hawk catches rabbit. This is the nomenclature for the Chinese boxing. The basic outline of this work is very close to Lister's manual. 
yet there are also differences that emerge later in Wood's description. To begin with, the pamphlet that he collected in the market near the commercial warehouses of Guangzhou began with a few exercises that focused on the strength and conditioning of your Chinese martial arts. This included both punching the heavy bags of sand and the weight training with the stone locks. Lister's work includes no discussion of physical training. Still, the basic format of these commercially printed pamphlets is remarkably similar. This is even more extraordinary given that they are separated by 40 years of some very violent history. It is also worth you knowing that at least one of the unarmed boxing techniques discussed in Lister's manual is also present in the work by Woods 40 years earlier and the one titled Hungry Tiger Catches the Sheep. Lister's article throws Woods' much earlier account into sharp relief and suggests that neither of these fight books were isolated projects. Rather, this area of China seemed to have had a long-running tradition of producing inexpensive martial arts manuals for commercial sale in the sort of stalls that also sold opera scripts and songbooks. It is intriguing that both of our accounts suggest that these manuals were being sold in the border region between the Chinese and Western worlds. It is highly unlikely that any of the Western warehouses in Guangzhou in the 1820s were hosting gray market Chinese published companies. That would lead us to the conclusion that this material probably had some production history in the local Chinese market. Ben has also presented that the commercial dissemination of the Chinese martial arts through public schools began in the mid-1800s in the Pearl River Delta of Guangdong. Now this is over a 15,000 square mile area. In perspective, if you take the five largest U.S. cities by area combined, they only come to 10,000 square miles. That includes Jacksonville, uh, Florida at number five, which is 747 square miles. The Pearl Delta area would house many, many schools in a 15,000 square mile area. This passing on of the Chinese martial arts through public schools in the mid-1800s, as opposed to having it being passed on only through closed clan groups, was certainly in full swing by the late 1800s. Now this is exactly one of the areas that we have discussed in several podcasts in the past where you look at you know self-pronounced grandmasters or these lineages of this and that. These sacred lineages may get pretty creative, especially when you realize that some of it may have just come through the public schools. Please remember that most lineages represent political statements and marketing plans, much more so than they do actual history. That doesn't make them unuseful, just remember what they are. Now let's get back to Ben's essay. Some authors have claimed that the commercial and public model of martial arts instruction would have been unthinkable prior to the early Republic period, let's say the 1950s to 20s, and was a sole innovation created by the well-known and nationally successful Jingwu Association. Well, that's why I love Ben's work so much, is that he cuts through so much crap so quickly. He is an expert in the field of politics, power, and resources. Cities and individuals have always looked for the opportunities to trade, gain resources like influence, power, and money. Then just as important to find ways to protect them. Ben goes on to say that the Jingwu did much to define the Chinese martial arts as an open and progressive institution in the public imagination. However, the early commercialization and industrialization of the Pearl River Delta, due to its importance as a regional and global trade hub, created both the demand for more security and a monetized economy that would support a market in martial services. The emergence of a print market for handbooks and pamphlets sold to the sorts of working-class individuals who were most likely to take up boxing is further evidence that the regional commercialization of the martial arts was very well underway by the end of the 19th century. 
Now we have another picture inserted into the essay, and it's actually very interesting. On the left-hand side, we have a black and white of the pugilist Jake Kilrain, right? A great uh, barehand knuckle fighter. And it, what's curious about the two pictures, because on the right side, you have uh, four gentlemen who are Chinese. They have the long braided ponytails, those type of things. But it's not the, the talent that is in there. It's the backdrop. The two images are almost identical when you look at the backdrop and the context to which they're standing. Ben has a caption underneath the two pictures that says, Late 19th century martial artist on the right and Jake Kilrain. These are in different hemispheres, but very similar promotional photography. Jake Kilrain lived from 1859 to 1937. He was a famous American bare-knuckle fighter and glove boxer of the 1880s. Jake Kilrain is worthy of a podcast all onto himself. So let's conclude by returning to Alfred Lister and his role in spreading a certain level of understanding of the Chinese martial arts to the 19th century Western readers. Lister's essay proved so popular that it was reprinted at least twice in various newspapers, including decades after its first release. Each of these reprints amplified the readership of his ideas. And while Lister went to lengths to obscure his identity, probably because he made some sharp attacks against colleagues in the civil service, one of these later editors of the Straight Times seems to have taken a great deal of satisfaction in outing Lister as the actual author. Throughout his articles and essays, Lister seems to have struggled to understand exactly what Chinese boxing was. Recall that the modern concepts like, quote, the martial arts, which act as a convenient catch-all in our current conversations, did not yet exist. He was left to work out on his own what connected staged opera performances, fights between gamblers, street performers, and military training exercises. Lister wanted to know how we should understand the nature of these similar exercises reoccurring in radically different, if always marginal, context. This is one area where Lister's personal theory of translation may have complicated things. Rather than delving more deeply into the social history of Chinese soldiers, opera singers, and criminals, he instead turned the metaphor of Western boxing and the romantic notion that working-class individuals might solve their differences and demonstrate their manhood through a constrained but vigorous fistfight understood as an impromptu sporting expedition. Lister notes with disappointment, for instance, that Chinese laborers almost never actually get into fights no matter how heated their disagreements. And when things are finally pushed to the breaking point, individuals would often come at each other with poles, stones, and other improvised weapons rather than engaging in an orderly round of fisticuffs for an appreciative audience of onlookers. In truth, the Chinese martial arts have been many things to many people. But during the late 19th century, the one social function that boxing rarely took on was that of organized sporting events. Lister notes with disappointment that only two of the lessons in his book are dedicated to unarmed boxing. That is 20% of the total. The other 80% of the work focuses on defending yourself with poles, swords, and shields. Lister does not spend much time thinking about the social and historical implications of these weapons, but we should. The middle years of the 19th century were a dangerous time to live in southern China. The region saw in quick succession the Opium Wars, the Red Turban Revolt, and a persistent state of civil war between the Cantonese and the Hakka linguistic communities. The Red Turban event alone generated tens of thousands of battlefield casualties. As if that wasn't enough, there was also very serious piracy outbreaks during the 19th century 
and very real fears of a Western military occupation of the Pearl River. At multiple points in this period, the male residents of the Pearl River Delta were put under arms, both to protect their villages and to fight battles on behalf of larger, gentry-led military forces. What were the three most commonly issued weapons for militia troops? A lone pole or spear, a set of butterfly swords, and a rattan shield. A few matchlock arms might be issued to each unit. The more up-to-date guns and cannons, which became increasingly common after the disturbance of the 1850s, were typically reserved for regular troops. So most militia members went into battle with either a pole or a set of Hudadao. We have some fascinating intelligence reports from British naval officers during the Opium Wars reporting, basically in disbelief, large groups of Chinese recruits drilling with these traditional weapons. One report said, March the 21st, Lin, the Governor General, was busy drilling 3,000 troops, a third portion of which was to consist of double-sworded men. These twin swords, when in scabbard, appeared as one thick, clumsy weapon, about two feet in length. The guard for the hand continuing straight, rather beyond the fort of the sword turns toward the point. It's forming a hook about two inches long. When in use, the thumb of each hand is passed under this hook, on which the sword hangs, until a twist of the wrist brings the grip within the grasp of the swordsman clashing and beating them together, and cutting the air in every direction, accompanying the action with abuse, noisy shouts, and hideous grimaces. These dread heroes advance, increasing their gesticulations and distortions of visage as they approach the enemy, especially when they expect the foe to become alarmed and fly before them. Lin had great faith in the power of these men. Ben continues by saying that butterfly swords seem to have originated in Guangdong during the late 18th or early 19th century. While double weapons are quite popular throughout China, this specific weapon remained a regional specialty in the middle years of the 19th century. Anyone familiar with arts like Wing Chun or Hungar can attest that they are still central to the area's martial identity today. On a personal note, this is one of the conversations that we were just recently having about uh, hands-only Chinese martial arts. And I can't think of too many Chinese martial arts that I have ever studied or know of that wasn't weapons first, hands last. I call it part of the old crap system, right? So you practice with swords and uh, poles and shields and things like that. But by the time you're practicing with your hands, it's because you lost everything else. Now, when we find a manual that devotes half of its weapons discussions to butterfly swords or similar blade forms, we can be confident that this is reflecting a distinct local martial culture. This pamphlet was not imported from anywhere else, nor was it simply a reprint of badly reproduced pages from an older Ming-era military encyclopedia. While there are many questions that we just cannot answer about the reconstruction of specific techniques in this text, its intended audience and mixture of topics suggests much about what was motivating the development of local martial arts in southern China between the 1820s and 1870. Its intended audience and mixture of topics suggest much about what was motivating the development of local martial arts in southern China between the 1820s and 1870s. Despite his best efforts, which were in many ways pioneering, Lister never really assimilated how the Chinese martial arts functioned within the broader social community, or even how that community's needs and definition of security might be different from his own. He remained trapped by the Western culture paradigms that saw these systems exclusively as either a poor method of athletic sparring, in which for some reason little actual sparring ever happened, or as an outdated vision of military training. Nor was Lister alone among Western observers in this assessment. But 
By publishing his views, he had a greater impact on the reading public. It is thus ironic that the Chinese martial arts reformers of the Republic period would so often seek to legitimate their arts by recreating them as either a rationalized sport on one hand or a system of more efficient military training on the other. While Lister may have failed to grasp the key elements of his subject, the cross-cultural dialogue that he helped to set in motion would have a profound impact on the development of the Chinese martial arts in the coming century. In the final analysis, it may be difficult to disagree with his assertion that we cannot translate. We cannot make something legible across cultural boundaries without at the same time transforming our discussion of it. Yet Lister never anticipated how profound this conversation would be, or that it would come to encompass the very nature and future of the Chinese martial arts themselves. And then we have the last image inserted into the essay, which on one side looks like an 1850s picture of China with a, a lot of martial arts gentlemen with standing there with poles and spears. And then we all have on the right-hand side a, a 21st century picture of people standing there with poles and spears and uh, T-shirts in their modern dojo. And it says, Every act of translation of martial arts is fundamentally a moment of transformation and recreation. I really enjoyed bringing this essay to you, and I'm excited because now I'm set so that I can be more consistent in upcoming uh, uh, development of programs and some videos and some new uh, gear that I just got. And also my mom is being taken care of. My son is now taken care of. He's on his way to start his wrestling career in college. Uh, so a lot of things are actually just kind of moving forward and uh, evolving to the next level. As always, I really appreciate your support and your audience. I love to hear from you. And I really hope that you go out today and have a great practice in everything you do. Take care, and I'll be talking with you soon.